I'll start reading a little bit of overlap from last week. I'll start reading at verse 13. We'll read to the end. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 13. If you're in a blue Bible, it's somewhere in the low 900s. 1 Timothy 6, 13. Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask for God's help. Father, help us to understand this word that we've heard as we finish this ancient letter. You still speak through it, though the man who wrote it and the man who received it have been dead for a long time. Speak to us, Lord, this morning through your eternal word that never perishes. Sustain us in hope in you rather than in the fading and changing things of this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder how much you thought about money this week or other kinds of wealth, maybe. How much did you think about your possessions? Your skills, your education, your family, your friendships, maybe your most valuable possession of all, your time. The heart of our passage this morning is about how wealthy Christians should view and use their wealth. Paul says in verse 17 that he wants Timothy to give some instruction to the people, the Christians who are rich in this present age. In material terms... Many of us in this room are pretty wealthy compared to the rest of this country, and all of us are very wealthy compared to most of the rest of the world. But in the Bible, this present age, that phrase that Paul uses here, is a way of referring to the world as it has existed since sin ruined it and entered it in Genesis chapter 3, at the very beginning of the world. This age is the world as it has existed since sin came into the world and will be until Jesus returns. The age to come, uh, or the, the future age, sometimes the New Testament talks about, that age began with the resurrection of Jesus. And so we are currently now living after Jesus' resurrection, but before he comes back, the New Testament says we are living in two ages at the same time. We're living in an overlap. This present age has referred, it's referring to the way the world has existed for almost its entire existence. If we compare ourselves to history, not just to the world as it exists today, but especially if we compare ourselves to history, we in this room are very, very, very rich. We have far more 
than just about anybody who's ever lived, including the wealthiest residents of ancient Ephesus, which is where this little church is that Timothy's trying to help. Uh, we have things, we take things for granted every single day that the kings and, king and queens and emperors of the ancient, and Middle Ages, ancient world and Middle Ages could have never dreamed of. And so in a sense, all of us are rich in this present age, even if there are plenty of people with a lot more money and leisure than us. We should listen to what Paul has to say here, even if you don't think of yourselves as rich. You may have noticed how often in this letter Paul has been talking about money and wealth. We heard about how churches can and should give financial support to needy widows. Uh, We heard about how churches should pay their pastors. We heard about how servants should be working for their masters. Money and wealth and work and possessions are some of the most constant and important ways that we interact with each other and experience each other and the world. Wealth is a good thing. Money is an amazing invention that makes a great deal of human society and cooperation possible. Imagine how far I could get at HEB if all I had to trade with them for food was writing sermons or giving them theology books. It would be very difficult for me to get much of anything from them. Wealth is a good thing. Money is an amazing invention that we depend on every day. The Bible is not too good. The Bible is not too spiritual to deny that. But at the same time, we also heard Paul warning us that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil and that the desire to become rich easily leads people into great destruction. Paul reminded us that God enables his people to be content no matter how meager their circumstances might be. Wealth is a good thing, but it's not an ultimate thing. Paul's final exhortation here in verse 20, that he guard the deposit entrusted to him. That's a financial metaphor. Paul's still on a money kick, uh, but Paul's now using it as a metaphor for the gospel message that Timothy and the church are supposed to guard and proclaim. Paul says, guard that like you would guard a financial deposit. Do that until Jesus returns to richly restore us and this world. Pastors, churches, and Christians are trustees of God's wealth. The good news of Jesus coming to rescue us in this world from sin is a treasure of vastly greater value than even the greatest earthly wealth. And so those who are rich in this present age are really just that. They are rich in a world that is marred by the curse of sin, and so they are rich in a world that is destined to be overthrown and purged. At the end of the day, even the most humble, poor Christian is vastly wealthier than Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. Because the Christian, no matter what their bank statements might say, has God's own spirit as a down payment, a deposit on the unfathomable wealth of God's mercy and goodness that he will lavish upon his people for all of eternity. But before we get to Paul's instructions to wealthy Christians in verses 17 to 19, I'd like to focus a bit on how Paul describes our wealthy God in verses 13 to 16. I puzzled about why Paul waits until the very end of the letter to give these instructions to the rich. He's even used the word amen. You think, all right, 
here we go, lunchtime. Paul's done with the letter. Nope, he keeps going. Uh, I did a PhD in the New Testament, and the kinds of solutions that scholars give for these things, why does Paul say strange things like this? Uh, it's not very creative. They would say things like, well, I don't know, maybe he woke up the next morning and realized he forgot to say something, and so he was too lazy to start over. He just added it to the end. No, that's silly. That's ridiculous. Paul is a very careful thinker, a very careful writer. There's a reason that he's putting it here. I think he's doing it because he wants the wealthy to understand that if they're going to give away their wealth, if they're going to view their wealth in the right way, if they're going to do it not begrudgingly, but they're going to do it joyfully and confidently, then they have to first understand who God is and what he's doing for them. If the wealthy, if we are going to view our money and our possessions in the right way, we need to first understand who God is and how wealthy he is and what he's doing for us. The Bible always roots generosity in God's generosity. Even under the Mosaic law, caring for the poor and supporting God's work is never forced. There are no civil penalties under the Mosaic law that say if someone doesn't give enough away to the poor, then punish them in this way. Giving of our things is always voluntary, even though we should do it, even though God commands it. And this voluntary giving flows out of a proper understanding of who God is and what he's doing for me. So look at verses 13 to 16. God's wealth, God's wealth here. Last week, Danny explained Paul's charge to Timothy to courageously pursue a life of godliness and integrity and how he's an example of that for us as Christians today. And then in verse 13, he's just given Timothy this charge and he says that he's doing it. He's charging him in the presence of God who gives life to all things. And so that's the first thing I want you to see about God if we're going to see our wealth rightly, that God richly gives life. He gives life to all things. This means that the world is not running on its own. It means that there wasn't just a big bang that kind of set things going however they might want to go randomly without any ultimate meaning or purpose or direction. Uh, The world doesn't even exist on its own. The Bible is very clear that God is always and intimately and actively sustaining every single thing at every single moment into all of eternity. That's what it means to be a creature. God did not just create the world and walk away, and he's not just staring in helplessly upon a closed system. Uh, If you've seen that old movie, The Graduate, there's a scene where he's banging on the glass uh, windows outside the wedding, trying to get the wedding to stop. Uh, This scene was also recreated in the great cinematic masterpiece, Wayne's World 2. God is not banging on the glass of the universe trying to get our attention and saying, no, no, stop, stop, please don't do that. Every single rock, every single mosquito, every single electron, every emotion, every idea, every line of code, every word, every mathematical and scientific law, all of them exist, all of them continue to exist because God is there behind them and in them, actively sustaining and moving them. Like the rest of creation, we, even as humans, even as God's greatest creation, even we are utterly and constantly dependent upon God. None of us provide life for ourselves or even for others. Ultimately, God is the only thing in all of existence that lives from himself. 
God lives from himself. He depends on nothing. It's from his own infinite vitality, his own liveliness that he sustains and supports and rules over us and our work and all of our wealth. He gives life to all things. That's the first thing we have to understand. But we also have to understand God's might. God richly gives life, but God is also mighty. The passage is full of language about how God rules over everything, about how he's the king, he's the authority, he's the Lord. Jesus is God, which is why he too is repeatedly described in these handful of verses as king. The words Lord and Christ both show up repeatedly. Those are both kingly terms. Christ means anointed. It means that Jesus is God's chosen king. You notice Paul also alluded to Jesus' good confession before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Uh, If you've read the Gospel of John, where we hear about Jesus interacting with Pilate, you see that really the only thing that Jesus says to him, Jesus is mostly silent, but the one thing that Jesus does acknowledge to him is that he's God's messianic king ruling over a kingdom that is qualitatively different than the kingdoms of this fading world. Jesus' good confession to Pilate is a kingly confession. Paul says in verse 15 that God is the blessed and only sovereign. To say that God is blessed, it showed up in our song earlier, it'll show up in our confession of faith later. To say that God is the blessed one means that he is supremely and totally content. It means that he is utterly happy in himself. He's utterly satisfied with himself. He's the happiest being in the entire universe. God lacks nothing. God needs nothing. He depends on nothing. And so in this happiness with himself, God is the world's only sovereign. There's nobody over God. He owes nothing to anybody. But he does not only sustain everything in his creation. He doesn't just keep it going. He also rules over it. So that in the words of the Confession of Faith, we'll say together in a little bit, God has the absolute right to do by his creation and for his creation and upon his creation whatever he wants. We don't even have that kind of control over our own bodies and minds and emotions, let alone the entire universe. In the language of Scripture, God rules over us and this world in the same kind of way that a potter rules over a lump of clay or a craftsman rules over his tools. There's some heavy-duty theology here. This doesn't mean we're just robots being kicked around by God. It doesn't mean we're marionettes being forced to do things we don't want to do. I'd be happy to talk to you about this later. But what it does mean is that the gap between me and God, even as an image bearer, the gap between me and God is infinitely greater than the gap between me and the fire ants in my yard. Because at the end of the day, the fire ants and me are just creatures. Paul says here that this almighty God is the King of kings, And the Lord of lords, he raises and humiliates presidents and generals and bosses and executives whenever and however he wants. Last week, God was utterly unimpressed by the meeting of the G7 leaders. He was totally unperturbed by the summit between Biden and Putin. Calvin said that Paul puts this phrase in here about God being the Lord of lords and the King of kings so that we won't be dazzled by the apparent glory of the world's leaders. The world is never out of control, 
God is never back on his heels. The church and his people can never finally be defeated by even the mightiest nations and armies. God is in charge. What this means is that if you are opposed to God, or if you are indifferent toward God, the God who sustains every fabric of your being, the God who rules over every speck of your existence, if you are opposed to him or you are indifferent to him, then the proper response is terror. Because the Bible says God will not be mocked forever. But if you are humble enough to submit to God and what he's saying through his son Jesus, then you know that this almighty God, while still remaining just as almighty as ever, is now also your merciful Father. The Almighty God is your merciful Father. For as Paul said back in chapter 1, Jesus Christ, King Jesus, came into the world to save sinners. Because as Paul said in chapter 2, Jesus is God's mediator, God's chosen man to go between himself and sinful humanity. This almighty King of kings, Lord of lords God, has drawn near to us in mercy so that his absolute self-existent sovereignty is no longer something that should terrify us, but now rather it's something to comfort us. In Matthew 6, when Jesus wants to encourage his disciples who are really anxious about money in the future, when he wants to encourage them to not be so worried about their possessions and what's going to happen, Matthew 6, he reminds them of the Father's sovereignty. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? God's sovereignty is meant to be a comfort to God's people. In the same way, in Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus wants to encourage his fearful disciples not to worry about hostile enemies, hostile authorities who could do great harm to them, he reminds them of the Father's sovereignty. He says, not one sparrow will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. You see that? God's sovereignty, not something to terrify us if you believe in Jesus, something to comfort you. God gives life to all things. God mightily rules over all things. But now look at verse 16. He describes God's own life. God alone has immortality. The God who rules over you and your stuff can never die. It is his very essence to live. It's not true of us. It's not my very essence. It's not the very uh, core of my being to stay alive. I could die very easily in lots of ways. But God can never be defeated. God can never be overwhelmed. It's impossible for him to die. We, on the other hand, are frail and vulnerable and mortal. Hasn't the last year and a half reminded us of that? Hasn't that reminded this world of that? No amount of scientists, no amount of vaccines, no level of lockdown or money printing will ever stop us from dying exactly when and how God wants us to. At best, wealth and technology can only delay our deaths, and then only a little bit. But God can never die. God alone has immortality. He lives from himself. Paul also reminds us of God's majesty. He says that God dwells 
in unapproachable light. No one has ever seen him. No one ever can see him. Paul is reminding us that God is infinitely other. He's holy and pure, and therefore he's ultimately incomprehensible. We can't ultimately understand him, and ultimately inaccessible in his own being, especially in our sinfulness. It means that we can't take God's kindness or his grace for granted. It means that in and of ourselves, we don't have any rights before God. It means that we can't demand anything from him. None of us could just waltz into the office or the locker room or the bedroom of anybody we might want, whether it's a head coach, a mayor, or a queen. How much less should we expect to be able to approach such a holy and majestic God on our own terms? We can only approach him through his own merciful and gracious work in Jesus. He's made a way for us to come to him. He sets the terms. Because he's so mighty and majestic, Paul says he's worthy of all glory and praise and authority. He says to him, be honor and eternal dominion. And then he's getting so excited that he writes down, amen. It's true. The word honor has to do with value and worth and wages and wealth. It's similar to the English word worship, which is rooted in this idea of worth, someone's worth-ship. God is life-giving, God is mighty, God is immortal, God is majestic. He's ultimately valuable and weighty. Now, we're ready to consider our own wealth, our own money, our own possessions. This is why Paul waits, I think. Verses 17 to 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. How could anybody be proud or boastful before such a God? If we understood that he is giving and has given us everything, how could we pat ourselves on the back for any of our success or any of our wealth? How could we sneer at those who have less and do less than we do? We can't take credit for anything. Paul says that Timothy is also supposed to charge these rich Christians not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather set their hope on God. You see, if we understand and we know that this is who God is, why would we ever build our life and our identity on something as lifeless and shallow and precarious as a stock portfolio? Your money, your job, your retirement, your gold doubloons buried in your backyard in an undisclosed location. None of them can be guaranteed. You cannot shield them from every possible failure. Instead, we need to put our hope into the living God, the one who can never change, the one who can never die, the one who rules over all things. He's shown us by giving us his son Jesus that he's for us that he is for us, that he's committed to us. The wonder of the Bible is that it tells us how God has voluntarily entered into a covenant, committed relationship with sinful people who don't deserve to be in it with him. The climax of God's covenant relationship with his people is the giving up of his own son Jesus to die in our place, to rescue us from all the ways that we've alienated ourselves from him. And so if God gave you his best, if God gave you his own son, won't he protect you? Won't he care for you? 
Won't he give you everything that you need to fill out, to live out the callings that God's placed upon you? Doesn't God see and care about what's happening to you? It's to this almighty and sovereign and holy God that the psalmist so confidently says these beautiful lines. He says, You have kept count of my tossings. You have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? And then he goes on, he says, This I know, that God is for me. We have to put our hope in the God who keeps covenant with his needy people, not in our possessions that only demand more and more and more from us. Paul says that the wealthy should put their hope in God because he's the one who provides us with everything to enjoy. Trusting in God is not the opposite of enjoying the good things of his world, even wealth, even affluence, even status. The wealthy show that they trust God by enjoying his, their wealth as God's gift to them rather than just proudly taking credit for it or putting their hope into it. If we know and believe that God is majestic and sovereign, we'll also know and believe that everything that we have is his gift. And so our lives will be marked by deep gratitude. And with that gratitude, deep humility, deep willingness to part from our possessions because they're not really ours anyways. That's why Paul shifts to now talking about the obligation of the wealthy to use their gifts and their resources and their possessions to do good for other people. Paul reminds them that God is a generous giver and it's in knowing that God is a generous giver that we can now hear this. They are to do good. They are to be rich in good works. They are to be generous and ready to share. God richly provides everything for us to enjoy. Do you notice this little play on words that Paul's doing? God richly provides everything to enjoy. And so in response, we're supposed to be rich in good works. Not just rich in money. Rich in good works. Our generosity, again, is always driven by savoring God's generosity to us. Or to put it another way, we can meet the needs of other people with the things that we have because we know and believe that God is going to meet all of our own needs. Trusting that God will take care of you gives you the freedom to let go of your things. You know, God will take care of you. I don't need this stuff. God knows what I need. It doesn't mean you shouldn't save for your family. It doesn't mean you shouldn't save for the future. Paul already told us a couple chapters ago that Christians, of course, are obligated to care for their relatives. It's absurd to think that they shouldn't. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that we should be as miserable as possible in this world. We enjoy God's gifts as they come, but at the same time, we are eager to share them with other people. Not in a stingy way, not because we have to, not because the pastor is beating you over the head with the passage about money, but we do it in a generous and even a costly way because we know who God is and we know that he'll provide for us. Paul says in verse 19 that by giving and sharing generously, the wealthy are going to store up for themselves treasures as a good foundation for the future. Paul is echoing the teaching of Jesus here who often talked about living for the unfading treasures and rewards of heaven rather than for the fading pleasures and possessions of this world. It doesn't mean that God saves us because we're generous or obedient, but it does mean that God very generously and very graciously rewards us for our obedience 
in the new creation, in the, the heavenly age to come, where we're going to enjoy what Paul calls here, what is truly life. The best things about this life, the happiest experiences we've had, the best possessions we have here, they're nice, they're good, but they're not truly life. True life is yet to come. Paul, Jesus, the entire Bible says, live for that life. Spend your money, give your money, use your money in such a way that you show that you're ultimately living for that life. That's true life. Whatever wealth we give up in this life will be richly rewarded by God in the true life to come. You cannot lose by obediently and cheerfully giving towards God's work and toward other people around you. You will never be cheated by God. Because God is a merciful God. God is a kind God. God is a generous God. That's why Paul ends his letter with a simple wish of God's grace. He says, grace be with you, Timothy. Grace be with all of you. The God who is mighty and life-giving, the God who is majestic and self-satisfied, is also the God of grace and patience towards the weak and the needy and the humble. And it's only by understanding that this almighty God is also our merciful Father that we can rightly view and approach our wealth. Not boasting in it, not hoping in it, but rather gratefully enjoying it and generously giving it. Grace be with you. The grace of God in Jesus is what sustains and motivates us not only to enjoy and give away our material wealth, but also, as we broaden out to the theme of the whole letter, it's also what sustains and motivates us as Christians and as the church to guard and to give away the spiritual wealth of the good news of Jesus. Because he came into the world to save sinners like us. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace in the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he gave up the riches of heaven for the poverty of a stable, the poverty of obscurity, the poverty of death on a cross, so that we might become rich. Help us to see that the age to come is really, truly life. Forgive us for the ways that we like to think that this world, with all of its disappointments and failures, is the best it's ever going to be. Help us, Lord, to see in Jesus our true riches. We pray in his name. Amen.